2 Corinthians chapter 12. The message I started to bring to you last week was called Applications of Grace. And we spent the whole time kind of setting up the verses that we're going to look up today. I've already explained it at the Lord's table. And we sang about it. We heard it sung about. We know that our salvation, the receiving of it, is entirely a work of God's grace. The keeping of it is entirely by the power of God according to His grace. When you look at yourself in the mirror, when you reflect back on your life, we're grateful for the growth that He grants to us. We're grateful for the knowledge that He grants to us. But at the end of the day, what we really have that we can say, wow, this is awesome, is that God is gracious and has showered the gifts of His grace, grace for grace, like it says in John chapter 1. Gracious gift upon gracious gift has been poured out on us through Jesus Christ. And we have our salvation. We have the assurance of that salvation. No one can take it from us. Nothing can separate us from it. There's nowhere up in the mountains. There's nowhere in the depth of the sea that you can go to get away from the Lord. His grace has saved us, and His grace will keep us all through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how should that affect our existence here? Our lives. I mean, we want to know that, right? And uh, I have six points. Three of them deal with kind of the inner man, and three of them sort of deal with like the outer working of our lives. So the first thing that I want to do is say a prayer, and then we'll just uh, kind of get right into this as we talk about applications of grace. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you are a God of grace and mercy and love and compassion, and you are faithful. We thank you, Lord God, for this time that we have together here now, because we know that the receiving of your grace and the abiding in your grace and growing in your grace ought to have an effect even on how we live our lives, that our lives here, though our works never justify us, But our lives here indeed should glorify you and cause people to recognize your goodness in us and even be like a magnet to be used by you to draw people to yourself. So teach us, we pray, Lord God, from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Verse 7. Seems like maybe an odd place to start, but, but I, want you to see, I want you to see this. Um, the first point, I guess I should just say now, that I want to talk about is that I have these three inner characteristics that I think the receiving of God's grace ought to stir up in us. The first of those is joy. We ought to be joyous as we recognize how God has been to us. There are lots of hard things that come up in our lives that can steal our joy and rob us of our joy. Have you noticed that? That can, that can happen. What we need to do is we need to walk 
faithfully and diligently and closely with God so that when those moments come up, we don't forget His grace. It's easy, maybe, to sit in church and have the comfort of fellow believers around and remember His grace and rejoice in His grace and worship Him over His grace. But where the real test comes is when we're out living our lives and there's hard stuff going on. And in those moments, even more so, we need to remember His grace so that our joy remains full. God didn't just give His grace to us so that we can just go, I'm so glad I'm saved, and then just beat ourselves up and beat and beat and beat ourselves down and everything else, right? Do you ever notice that, by the way, that beat yourself up and beat yourself down mean the same thing, even though that they're opposites? Do you ever notice that? That's weird. I'm sorry, I notice weird things like that. But, but in any case, you know, God gave us his grace, and along with it, we're allowed to be happy about it. Right? Yes, I know that my works are filthy rags, and I know that I'm destined for hell without his love and without his grace and all, and all of that, and all of that is true. But God has like snatched me out of that pit. God has snatched me out of that hole. He's snatched me out of that mud and clay and put my feet on rock, on solid ground. And you know what? He did all that by His grace. And it's okay, in fact, encouraged and expected that you be happy about that. Glory in that. Sometimes when we receive something good that's a gift, we get just overwhelmed by our unworthiness. And there is something that is very holy about that. It's a mark of humility, and that's all very good. But don't let that obscure in your own heart joy. Be happy. I know we don't deserve it, but God gave it to us, and he paid a great price for it. Enjoy it. Enjoy that God is gracious and that he set us free. Be happy about that. Whatever hard thing may happen to come up in this life, nothing's going to change the fact that when I get to the end of this life, which is where my eyes are supposed to be anyway, by the way, right, is on the end and on the prize and on heaven. When I get there, I am assured, I am assured because of his grace that I will be with him forever because of faith in him. That ought to make you happy. Now here's, look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Listen to what Paul says here. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect, or my, my, my strength is made complete and matures and just shines and grows. My strength is grown up, made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Right? You see what he's saying there? The Apostle Paul is talking about the fact, I mean, if you backed up to like uh, verse 3, he's talking about himself and he says, I know such a man, whether in body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. And he, he talks about the fact that uh, 
he talks about the fact that he like saw heaven. I mean, he was caught up. And, and it was such a st- astonishing experience that he said, I don't even know if it was like I was physically, literally there or it was like a vision. I don't even know. He was so blown away by it, right? And, and he says, um, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. Why? Why would someone say, I'm not even going to brag about that? I'm not even going to brag about the fact, because, you know, in the modern world, you see it all the time, right? Someone has some great experience in God, and they, they, they use it to, like, promote themselves and get rich and everything else, and sometimes they turn out to be fake. You know, people say they've gone to heaven and, and everything else, and they make movies, and they write books, and they make a lot of money, and then time goes by, and they realize it was all fake, right? Um, that's not to say that heaven is fake, but sometimes the stories that people make up are, are like sensationalized. Paul is saying here, I'm not going to do that. You know what? Even though, even though I've seen this, and he says, I don't even know it was me. That's why he talks about it in like the third person, you know, like he's talking about somebody else. But, but he, 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 uh, he said, I'm not even going to boast in that. I could, but I'm not going to. You know, I'm going to boast in the most unexpected of things. I'm going to boast in my infirmities. Infirmity is like a word that means like sickness, right? Though, for though I might desire to boast, I'm not going to be a fool. I'm going to speak the truth. But I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees to be, sees me to be or hears from me. So I'm not going to stand here and brag and make a fool out of myself. I'm going to boast in my infirmities. Why? You know why? Because his infirmities magnify what? God's grace. Now, what I want you to see is the connection between God's grace in Paul's sufferings and infirmities and actual joy that he had in his heart. Watch this. He says, lest I be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. You know, having seen this and seen that and had God shot, lest I should become puffed up and proud by all that. What did God do? God gave me a thorn in the flesh. What is a thorn in the flesh? And, and you know, it's not important to like draw sides really harshly on this. Some people say the thorn in the flesh, they emphasize the in the flesh and, 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 and understand it to be something in his, uh, actually physically in his body. Elsewhere, Paul had talked about the fact that like, he couldn't really see so well, see what, with what large letters I have written, and maybe some people think it's that. Other people will look at it. I think John MacArthur does this. He looks at it and he says, the thorn in the flesh is the false teachers that he's been talking about in 2 in second, in second Corinthians, right? But whatever it was, it was something that God allowed in his life that was really hard to deal with naturally, right? Hard to bear with. In fact, he refers to it as a messenger of Satan. God had allowed something in his life that was, that was hard and was bad. Messenger of Satan might be why somebody leans towards it being like false teachers because they were actually speaking on behalf of Satan, right? But he says, this was allowed in my life to buffet me, which basically means to beat me up, right? Lest I be exalted above measure. And look what Paul did. Paul did exactly what you and I would do. We went to the Lord and we begged him three times, please take it away. Lord, please take this away. Lord, please, please take this away. And what did he get? Every time he asked, he got the same answer, right? And he said to me what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
What he's saying there is, is a couple of things. Number one, his grace is enough and his grace is greater than any difficulty or trouble that he could have in his life. And then secondly, beyond that, and this might be something that Bob talked about a couple weeks ago, but beyond that, he's also talking about the fact that the suffering actually has a practical purpose in his life. Right? Because his grace is sufficient for me because he says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, there's something in you. The strength of God is going to grow in you as you endure a hardship by his grace. Do you understand that? Praise the Lord. And now, look at the next sentence. Therefore, what? Here's the point. Here's what God's grace, here's an application of God's grace. Here's here's what God's grace should stir up in someone when they recognize it. And Paul, these words are the words of someone who recognizes the power of God's grace. These are the words of someone who, when they say amazing grace, they know what that means, right? Then he says what? Ready? Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. In other words, not, not just instead of boasting in the revelations and visions that God gave me, I'm going to boast in my infirmities, but I'm looking in on the words most gladly. In other words, with great joy and with great happiness because when Paul really grabbed a hold of what God's grace was about, it inspired in him great joy. Now, it might be hard for us might be. It is hard for us to go through hardships. That's why they're called hardships. That's why I got that, right? Hardships, because they're hard, right? And so, and, and we go through those things, and of course they're hard. But listen, Paul recognized, and we need to be trained to recognize, and this training comes only by spending much time with the Lord. You've got to be in the Word, You've got to be in prayer. I beg you, before the Lord, daily, frequently, be in His Word. Read it for yourself. Wives, don't leave it to your husbands. Husbands, don't leave it to your wives. Kids, don't leave it to your parents. Get in front of your Bible and get in it and read it every day and pray to the Lord and ask Him for help. Ask Him for strength. Worship Him. Thank Him. Praise Him. Be Spirit-filled people. Ask God as you're reading and praying to fill you with His Spirit that you might recognize like Paul does here that His grace and how it sustains me through hardships is even a more boast-worthy thing than seeing heaven with my own eyes. I mean, that's what he's saying here. And, and the endurance of those hardships actually works out something practical and good. You become trained. You, you, you become trained to rest more and more in God's strength. But you must be consistent in prayer and consistent in the Word and consistent in fellowship. Come on, we need to raise up spiritual people. And we need each other to do that. That's why the church is illustrated as a body. Not as just a bunch of individuals marching around. And so you need to be in fellowship and you need to be in word and you need to be in, the pr- in prayer so that you recognize that in the midst of hardship, God's grace can actually inspire. What does he say? Most gladly, it can inspire joy in you. Joy in his grace. Be happy about God's grace. 
Enjoy God's grace. Love him for his grace. Celebrate his grace. Talk about his grace all day with other people. Make much of God's grace. Yes? Number two. Not only should God's grace stir up joy in us, but it should also stir up humility in us. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Leaning very hard on the writings of Paul today, though if I have time, we're going to hear from Peter a little later too. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Now look at your Bibles and and follow along carefully. Who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save worthy people and I am the most worthy of all. Oh no, it doesn't say that. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 14 said, The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Right? So you see there that God's grace was abundant to the Apostle Paul to save him from what he was. What was the Apostle Paul? A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. The Apostle Paul, you know, we, we read his writings and we so admire and are so blessed and so edified by the deep truths and the spirituality and the Christ-honoring nature of God's Word as, as written down and brought to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul that we forget what God took him out of. We know that he was a Pharisee. We know that religiously he was an expert more advanced than any of his contemporaries that he said. He was a murderer. I say this with a bit of trepidation because I happen to think that it's wrong to like bring up somebody's past before they knew the Lord. You know what I mean? Listen, we were all, please forgive me, but we were all trash before we knew the Lord, right? Come on, be real about this. What were we? We were nothing, man. You know? And, and the Apostle Paul was like, standing there when they stones. How could you do that? Can you even comprehend standing there watching the coats with you? Maybe like, mm-hmm. While they're literally stoning someone to death. Because Stephen, one of the first uh, deacons, you might say, was uh, 
uh, had given this great defense before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. And they were so offended at him that they dragged him outside and immediately stoned him to death. And the apostle Paul, when he was Saul, was standing there consenting to it. We know that he had letters from the religious leaders to go from town to town and march right into the synagogues and find anyone, men, women, children, separating families. He had the authority in writing to walk into synagogues in any town and find anyone who confessed that Jesus was the Messiah and grab them, separate them from their families and throw them in prison. That's what he was. He was a persecutor, an insolent man. And I don't mean to tread up his past. But he wrote it down for us. You know why? Because he's humble. Because he is, listen, the Apostle Paul, above anything else, was humbled by the fact that God would seek out not the most worthy and the most qualified, but that God would not only find a sinner, but find their chief as he perceived it. That ought to make us humble. When we think about the fact that we know what we were and then God's grace came to us in Christ, it, listen, I don't, and I say this even as someone who's guilty, right? But I don't understand, the more I think about it, how you can find a scrap of pride in a church. A church is a hospital for sinners. And nobody, when they're really, really sick, goes into the hospital bragging about how great everything is. They go in there because they want to get well and they know that they need what those people can do to get well. When we have been touched by God's grace for salvation through faith in Christ, our ongoing existence day by day ought to be characterized by great humility. Paul says... Christ Jesus, faithful saying, and look, worthy of all acceptance. In other words, every single person ought to believe this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the chief of them. I'm number one. Paul didn't see himself as the great apostle. He saw himself as general sinner, admiral sinner, right? Not in a self-deprecating, self-loathing way, but God's grace made him humble. And that's what the revelation of God's... I cannot understand how people will turn the grace of God into some sort of just concept on a page that is to be bragged and argued about. The person who really... Listen, the person who really understands God's grace is the humblest of men and the humblest of women. You show me someone who's truly humble before God... They may not even be able to articulate it like a theologian, but they understand God's grace when they're really humble before the Lord. Thirdly, we also ought to be thankful. Um, turn to it's a couple verses. Stay in, uh, go 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 13, just really quickly. 2 Corinthians 4, 13. I said that God's grace ought to make us joyous. God's grace ought to make us humble. Thirdly, of the inner qualities, God's grace ought to make us thankful. 2 Corinthians 4.13. Two verses here real quick. 
2 Corinthians 4.13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Here's the key, verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. What he's talking about in that passage of Scripture is the fact that they preached and they spoke and they suffered great persecution because of it, but the reason they did it was for the sake of all of the other believers who would read and what they wrote and listen to what they preached so that God's grace through all of this ministry of preaching the gospel would spread, the grace would spread, the grace would spread, the grace would spread, and as people believed and received the grace of God, what would it stir up in them? Thanksgiving. We ought to be thankful that God is gracious. And I know you know this, I've said it many times, but you know, when you read Romans chapter 1, and this is really familiar ground for us, we've read it many times, you'll have to turn there now. But when you read Romans chapter 1, and you read about Paul's indictment of the Roman world, which in, basically is the entire world, as far as like anyone who lived in that area is concerned, when you read it, it talks about what? It talks about the fact that although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were what? Thankful. Do you know that people will look at Romans chapter 1, and they will see the things it says about homosexuality, which it does, right? And they'll say that, like, you know, God was really angry at the world because of homosexuals, and that's wrong. Actually, what it says was the entire world had turned against God. They knew God. They didn't glorify Him as God. God had revealed Himself. Even nature, that everything God had made, revealed His eternal power and Godhead. And man made idols and images and, and forgot God. And, they, and one of the highest of all idolatrous crimes was that they either took credit for or thanked somebody else or simply enjoyed all the blessings of life without being thankful to the God who gave all of that to them. And as a result, God gave them up to a debased mind to do whatever they felt like. And that's where rampant immorality and homosexuality and everything came from. But at the root of it was that mankind was not thankful to God. Know this, Christian. At the root of it all was that mankind was not thankful to God for life and for all of life's blessings and for all of life's goodness. And that is not just some small thing. That's just not an oversight. It's a crime of unrighteousness against God to not be thankful for all He's done in our lives. So when the grace of God comes through the preaching of the gospel, guess what? Instantly, as a matter of highest priority, that ought to stir up. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the assured promise and the hope of everlasting life. And furthermore, thank you for everything that you do in my life. That's one of the biggest things that God's grace... Listen, listen, listen. One of the biggest things that God's grace ought to reverse in a human being is the lack of thankfulness to God. It ought to be exchanged for abundant thankfulness to God. 
May I say to you that Thanksgiving, and I just mean to be like psychological about this or anything, but may I say to you that Thanksgiving is something that you need to practice on purpose. You cannot leave being thankful just to whim or to like an automatic reflex. Thanksgiving is from the heart, but you need to learn to like master your own heart. You need to learn to guard your heart with all diligence, the Bible says, right? We don't let our hearts get away from us. We control them. And thanksgiving is one of those things that you have to just decide. I am not going to walk through my life without every day, moment by moment, for every good thing, especially his grace for salvation, be thankful to God. God's grace ought to stir up joy. God's grace ought to stir up humility. God's grace ought to stir up thanksgiving. Those are three inner workings of men. Really quick, here's a few of the outer workings, maybe you could say. Here's one that is so plain, it's almost embarrassing to say it, but I feel like it needs to be said because it's so lacking. And that, you ready for this? Here's why I get paid the big bucks. You ready? God's grace ought to make us gracious. How can someone know, really know God's grace and not have the capacity to exercise it in their own lives? Are we not familiar with Christ's own teaching in his parables where he speaks of the servant who owes a massive amount of money to some creditor and goes and begs because the creditor is going to throw him and his family into slavery to pay off the debt. And he's like, please, please, please. And this servant, this, or this servant is forgiven by this rich master of this great, gigantic, huge, hundreds of thousands of dollars that he could never pay back, perhaps, debt and is set free. And then you know what he does? He immediately goes out and finds some guy who owes him 20 bucks and the guy can't pay him back. And so he turns him over to the officials and they throw him in jail, right? That's the person that receives grace but doesn't have the capacity to be gracious. And you know what? We've received grace for an enormous, immeasurable debt. May I suggest to you that there is no thing There is no, listen, I don't want to be insensitive to the times you've been hurt in your life. Please don't misunderstand me. I know we've all been hurt. I know that. And I know it's hard and I know it's bad. And if we're honest, we've probably hurt other people too. Right? That's humanness. But you know what? I just have to say it as kind of a cold, hard fact. I just don't think there's any amount of hurt maybe that we've received that can measure up to the sinfulness of our own lives before God. God has forgiven us of crime upon crime upon crime. Sin upon sin upon sin. And we've received His grace and we ought to be able to be gracious. What says his word? Ephesians 4.29. Real quick, turn there. 
Ephesians 4.29. Look at this. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart what? Grace to the hearers. When we... We have received... Listen, Ephesians is the book that back in chapter 2, we read it last week, says, by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's God's gift, not of your works. And now you're told here what? What do you use your mouth for? It says here, no corrupt word should come out of your mouth. Except, you know what you should use your mouth for? That which builds up. Necessary edification. We need to learn to use our mouths not to tear down, not to destroy, not to inflict harm in the face, behind the back, in any setting. Instead, we need to use our words to edify, to build up our words. Look, we are recipients of grace. Our words should impart grace to others. When you have people using their words for that, you know what happens? Christians grow. Love abounds. Fellowship thrives. Because the mouth is just revealing what's in the heart, right? And if the heart has received grace, then the heart ought to be able to dish it out. Turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. So, just to, if you're keeping score here, the, uh, the three inner qualities that I saw grace stirring up were joy, humility, and thanksgiving. Now, the three outworkings of it are, number one, the person who has received grace ought to be gracious. Number two... The person who has received grace ought to live a life that shows it. Look, verse Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What is that grace? That's Jesus. The grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Jesus was born. Jesus came, lived his life, died for our sins, rose from the dead. What should that teach us? It should teach us, according to verse 12, see, the grace of God is that which saves us, but have you ever thought of this, that the grace of God is an instructor in our lives? Just like the law is the tutor that shows us we're sinful, grace is the tutor that shows us now how we ought to live, having been reconciled to God. You see? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, Heads upward, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Right? The grace of God, having received it, ought to teach us and inspire us to live like that. Deny the ungodliness, deny the worldly lusts, and instead live soberly, righteously, and godly in this age as we look for the age to come, which is characterized by the glorious appearing of Jesus. God's grace ought to inspire a fighting against sin in our own lives, 
and a striving to live godly while we're here. As we look for the age to come, God's grace ought to get our eyes off of the mire of the here and now and get our eyes squarely on the age which is coming. And as we walk and look at that age which is ahead, we should be denying ungodliness, denying worldly lusts, and seeking to live righteous and sober and godly in this age while we wait for the age to come. It is the receiving of His grace that ought to teach that in us. Lastly, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Giving credit where it's due. I was hanging out with Brother Bob this last week and actually weren't hanging out. I think he texted me and texted this verse to me. And it was like, whoa, that's like perfect. Listen to this. This chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1, through and three, 1, 2, and 3. This is familiar ground to us, but look especially at the way this sentence ends. I mean, verses 1, 2, and 3 are one sentence, right? Look, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. That's a, mouth, that, that's a mouthful by itself. That's why the, that's why the uh, I guess, the verse assigners made that phrase one verse by itself because it's so much to chew on. Get rid of all of that. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, that's the part of this that everybody knows. We love God's word like a baby loves milk, and as we drink it up, we grow like a baby grows. But look at verse 3. If indeed that you have tasted what? That the Lord is gracious. In other words, if you've received, one of the practical applications of God's grace is, if you've received God's grace, it ought to create a thirst in you for something different. God's grace ought to create a thirst like a baby has for milk because we want to grow. But you need now to lay aside all those things that we so easily walked in. Get rid of malice. Get rid of deceit. Stop being deceitful. Stop being hypocrites. Stop being envious. Stop all evil speaking. And instead, since you've tasted that God is gracious, since you have taken that big, delicious bite of God's grace, get the stuff out of your life that shouldn't be there and instead desire the pure milk of his word that you might grow. Those are the applications of his grace. Inwardly, there ought to be joy, humility, and thanksgiving. Outwardly, there ought to be a practical graciousness, a living in a new way, and a love for his word that we might grow. All of those things are practical outworkings of what God's grace does in our lives.